we're, we're entering the, the last phase of Matthew's gospel, the last phase of the ministry of Jesus. And uh, if this might be your, your first time with us, just to recapture where we've been, we've been on a journey uh, with Jesus. We began in Bethlehem, we went into Egypt, we came back into Nazareth, we followed Jesus all around the land of Galilee. We followed him into Capernaum. We followed him then into Judea and, and uh, other places, other towns. And for the first time in Matthew's gospel, we enter into Jerusalem, where Matthew records the last week of Jesus' life. And friends, it would be hard to exaggerate how significant the events are that take place in these last eight chapters. And these last eight days of Jesus' life, just think about what happens. He enters Jerusalem triumphantly, which we'll talk about this morning. He uh, stirs up a hornet's nest with those religious leaders by cleaning, cleansing the temple. We'll talk about that in a moment. He institutes the Lord's Supper. He gets arrested. He gets crucified. And he raises from the dead three days later. This is the last week of Jesus' life. It's a busy one. And make no mistake about it, this week is the week that all of creation has been waiting for since the beginning. If you were with us in our Genesis study, Genesis 3, when God promises that dirty serpent, that the seed of the woman, his man, would crush his head and he would strike his heel. This is about to be fulfilled at the end of this week in the life, death, and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. Just as God and all of his creative power brought everything good into existence out of the chaos of darkness by his spoken word alone, here the incarnate word is going to take that same creative power and bring something new out of the chaos and darkness of sin. All of the events that take place in this chapter and the following chapters, they're not just the climax of Jesus' life, but it's the very week that has changed the world forever. And so I'm very excited that we're studying this today and that we'll be looking at these subsequent chapters. Please don't miss it. We're going to look at some amazing things. Now, up until this point, you might remember that all the folks who have come into contact with Jesus, those folks that he's healed, and have become privy to who he is truly, Jesus has essentially told them to keep a lid on it. He doesn't want them to tell anybody else about who he really is. Why? Because his time had not yet arrived. That is until the end of chapter 20, which y'all looked at last week. When Jesus healed those two blind men, he didn't tell them to keep it quiet. Why? Because finally, his time has arrived. And Jesus wants to make clear to everybody who has eyes to see and ears to hear that what has been implied up until this point, he declares that he, in fact, is the Messiah. He is the Son of God. He is the branch of David. He is the King of Kings, worthy of our praise and all of our life following him in discipleship. Not just a fraction of our lives, but our entire lives. Jesus makes this clear. So in these 46 verses, what Matthew's going to do is he's going to put the kingship of Jesus on display. And as he puts him on display, the reader is left with two questions. Do we believe that Jesus truly is the King? And if we do... Are we going to respond appropriately? So who is Jesus? Who is this king of kings? Then are we going to respond to this king appropriately? Chapter 21, starting in verse 1. Hear the word of God. Now when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethpage, to the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, the Lord needs them. 
and he will send them at once. This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Zechariah, saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, and on a colt, the fowl of a beast of burden. The disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and put them on their cloaks, and he sat on them. Most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road and cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds that went before him and followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And when he entered in Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up saying, Who is this? And the crowd said, This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. Now most likely the next day, Jesus entered the temple and drove out all who sold and bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. He said to them, It is written, My house shall be called a house of prayer, but you make it a den of robbers. And the blind and the lame came to him in the temple, and Jesus healed them. But when the chief priests and the scribes saw these wonderful things that he had did, and the children crying out in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant. And they said to him, Did you hear what these are saying? And Jesus said to them, Yes. Have you ever heard? Out of the mouth of infants and nursing babies, you have prepared praise. And leaving them, he went out of the city to Bethany and lodged there. Now in the morning, he was returning to the city. He became hungry and seeing a fig tree by the wayside, he went to it and found nothing on it but leaves. And he said to it, may no fruit ever come from you again. And the fig tree withered at once. When the disciples saw it, they marveled saying, how did the fig tree wither at once? And Jesus answered them, truly I say to you, if you have faith and do not doubt, you will not only do what has been done to the fig tree, but even if you say to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea, it will happen. And whatever you ask in prayer, you will receive if you have faith. And when he entered the temple, the chief priests and the elders of the people came up to him as he was teaching and said, by what authority are you doing these things? And who gave you this authority? Jesus answered them, I also will ask you one question. And if you tell me the answer then I will also tell you about what authority I do these things. The baptism of John, from where did it come? From heaven or from man? They discussed it among themselves, saying, Now if we say from heaven, he will say to us, Why then do you not believe? But if we say from man, well, we're afraid of the crowd, for they all hold that John was a prophet. So they answered Jesus, We do not know. And Jesus said to them, Neither will I tell you about what authority I do these things. Now what do you think? A man had two sons. He went to the first and said, So go and work in the vineyard today. And he answered, I will not. But afterward he changed his mind and went. And he went to the other son and said the same. And he answered, I go, sir, but did not go. Which of the two did the will of his father? They said, Well, the first. And Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you, the tax collectors and the prostitutes go into the kingdom of God before you. For John came to you in the way of righteousness, and you did not believe him. But the tax collectors and the prostitutes believed him. And even when you saw it, you did not afterward change your minds and believe him. Here another parable. There was a master of a house who planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a wine press in it and built a tower and leased it to tenants. Now the tenants were the religious establishment, the Jewish leaders. And went into another country. When the season of fruit drew near, he sent his servants, that is the prophets, to the tenants to get his fruit. And the tenants took his servants and beat one, killed another, and stoned another. Again, he sent other servants, more than the first. 
Then they did the same to them. Finally, he sent his son to them, saying, They, of course, will respect my son. But when the tenants saw the son, they said to themselves, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him and have his inheritance. And they took him and threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. When therefore the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those tenants? They said to him, Well, he will put those wretches to a miserable death and let the vineyard to other tenants who will give him the fruits in their seasons. Jesus said to them, Have you never read it in the scriptures that the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone? This was the Lord's doing, and it's marvelous in our eyes. Therefore, I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing its fruits. And the one who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces, and when it falls on anyone, it will crush them. When the chief priests and the Pharisees heard these parables, they perceived that he was speaking about them. And although they were seeking to arrest him, they feared the crowds because they held him to be a prophet. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together, brothers. Heavenly Father, uh, again, we are so thankful for this morning. And we pray that, Lord, that you would send your spirit to us, uh, that you would speak through me, that you would open all of our ears, that you do a marvelous work in our hearts, that we wouldn't just be informed by your word, but truly transformed by it. And we need your spirit for that. So send your spirit, O God, for our good, and certainly, and most importantly, for your glory, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. As you uh, know, or may know, C.S. Lewis, who, by the way, is one of my favorite authors and teachers, at one time was an atheist. But then he was converted, and he took his amazing intellect and became a very effectual apologist. And one of his goals was to seek after non-believers, particularly atheists and agnostics like he once was, to convince them the truth of the gospel using his intellect. And one of his attempts was broadcast live on BBC Radio, is later recorded in his book, Mere Christianity, and it's effectively known as Lewis's trilemma argument. And this is what he said. I'm trying to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about Jesus, that I'm ready to accept him as a great moral teacher, but I do not accept him to be God. Friends, that is the one thing we must not say. A man who is merely a man instead of the sort of things that Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with the man who says that he's a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God, or else a madman, or else something worse. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit on him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. Now, it seems to me obvious that he was neither a lunatic nor a fiend. And consequently, however strange or terrifying or unlikely it may seem, I have to accept the view that he was and is God. His point is that the gospel prevents us. Not only atheists or agnostics, but cultural Christians, nominal Christians that we often see in our environment. The gospel prevents us from managing Jesus. Oftentimes we try to. People try to manage Jesus. They are indifferent towards him, or they conclude that he was, he was a great prophet, a great teacher, that had lots of great things to say, but has no real authority in my life. If he is truly the Son of God, I'll deal with him later, but now is not the time. What Matthew is presenting us is that the gospel prevents us from trying to manage Jesus, because the gospel claims are so significant So otherworldly, the kingship of Jesus is so important, it drives us to make the decision, do we believe or don't we? 
Either way, the consequences are important. The consequences of believing or not believing are significant. Now, we're given Matthew chapter 21 by God so that you and I might have our eyes opened, like the two men in chapter 20, those blind men, that we might come to see and believe, like C.S. Lewis, that Jesus Christ isn't any ordinary king. He isn't any ordinary person. He truly is the Son of God. And by believing, you and I might respond appropriately. That Jesus Christ is the one true king, the Son of David, the Messiah, the Savior of the world. And by believing, we might respond appropriately. So here's the agenda today. Matthew wants us to see in these first 22 verses what type of king Jesus is. Who is King Jesus? What type of king is it? What what attributes are are tied to his kingship? So he lays out the kingship of Jesus for us. And secondly, he wants us to respond appropriately to King Jesus. And we're going to see that in these parables. So first and foremost, who is this King Jesus? Verses 1 through 22. It's important for us to understand that God designed every single detail in the scene of Jesus' entry uh, into Jerusalem to communicate certain things about his kingship. All right, there's lots of things that, that are expressed here that we don't have time for, but I want us to focus on four beautiful, amazing attributes of the kingship of Jesus. First off, we see in verses 1 through 5 that Jesus is the prophesied king. Okay, that means that Jesus was not an accident. He was not plan B, but all of history has been leading up to this point. Biblical history, all history has been leading up to this point. That Jesus is the prophesied and triumphant king. Do you guys know that there's over 300 prophecies in the Old Testament? 300 that were fulfilled in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus? 300 prophecies, most of which someone who just said, you know what, I want to be the Messiah, I want to fulfill all these prophecies. It's mathematically impossible for they have done that because a lot of the prophecies Jesus really had no control over. Say, for example, his birth and his death. But 300 prophecies were fulfilled in the birth, life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. However, this prophecy in verses 1 through 5, Jesus deliberately fulfills it because he's essentially using this prophecy from Zechariah Zechariah 9.9 as a symbolic self-disclosure for all of those who had eyes to see that they might know, that we might know, that he truly is the prophesied and triumphant king. Rejoice greatly, daughter Zion. Your king is coming to you. He is righteous and victorious and riding on a donkey. Jesus purposefully did that to communicate something to us about his kingship. He is the one that the world has been waiting for since the beginning. Now, a little bit of history about this prophecy from Zechariah 9.9. It was given during a time when the people of Israel, they were still in exile. That's when Zechariah had his ministry. And he prophesied to the people of God that one day God's king would come and rescue and deliver them from exile. That he would once again vindicate them as the people of God. That this king, God's king, the true king, would vanquish all of his enemies and their enemies and establish his everlasting kingdom. So all of Israel, they held on to this promise, this hope of Zechariah. They clung to it. They longed for that day. Then several years later, Uh, Persia decides to return the Jews from exile. And they go back to the promised land. And they're thinking to themselves, all right, now we're cooking. This promised king that we've been waiting for for centuries has come. Let's get busy, boys. 
And if you've been with us in our study on Nehemiah on Sunday evenings, they started building the temple. They started building the wall around the city. They could have rulers again. Everything was looking up and up until, well, it didn't, right? Because if you've been in our study of Nehemiah, once they returned to the promised land, the promised land was not great. Um, Yeah, they returned from exile, but they were still under oppression from the Persians and eventually the Romans. Yeah, they rebuilt the temple, but it wasn't to its former glory. The the glory of God, the presence of God, has not come to dwell in the temple like it did in the olden days in the time of Solomon. Yeah, they had rulers now and kings, but they did not measure up to the characteristics of the promised king. There were failed rulers. All was not well in the land, and they knew it. And so they again clung to the hope of Zechariah. When would this happen? Please, God, send him. 400 years of silence. Until one day, a man from Nazareth named Jesus strode into Jerusalem riding on a donkey. And everybody who had eyes to see knew exactly what that meant. People who had heard about Jesus, who had seen Jesus do marvelous things, heard these claims people were making about Jesus. They now see Jesus riding up on this donkey. They remember the Zechariah 9-9 hope because they've been clinging to it. And of course, they didn't understand everything fully, which we'll see in a moment. They still rejoiced because they understood what Jesus was doing. Jesus was telling them and he's telling us that he's not any ordinary king. He's not some Johnny-come-lately. He wasn't a would-be Messiah as there were so many before him, but that truly he is the hope of the world. He is the promised seed. He is the, the branch of David. He is the king of kings, and he has arrived, which means the world is about to change forever. So Jesus is not a plan B. This has been leading up for all of history to this moment that the promised king would arrive, the prophesied triumphant one. Now, there's something I want us to take note of, a little bit of application Commentaries don't really hit on this, but and I might be reading into it. The principle is true, though. But every time I think about this, I can't help but see when Jesus comes riding in on a donkey, the king of kings, the promised one, the crowds, they didn't try to go out and find Jesus. Right? I mean, they, they, they weren't working up their, their pitch of why the king should come. They didn't go to him, but rather this promised king came to them. This this hope of the world came into their lives and rode amongst them. And brothers, the hope of the world, the King of Kings, comes to you too. He comes to you in his word this morning. Every time you open up his Bible, he comes directly into your life. The King of Kings comes to you. Don't miss that. Right? Because throughout the history of the world, ever since the fall, everybody's been trying to earn heaven. That's what the Tower of Babel is about. They're saying, we don't need God. We can get to heaven by ourselves. Everybody's been trying to achieve salvation. And we know that that's a fool's errand, all right? The Bible tells us that, you know, we have no hope within ourselves. Even our best works are nothing but filthy rags before a just and holy God. Uh, We're all sinful. We fall well short of the glory of God. You and I have no hope within ourselves. But when I read this and I see the, the picture of it, I'm reminded of the hope of the gospel, that hope has come to us in Jesus Christ. Brothers, the King of Kings, just think about this. He makes himself available to you. Isn't that remarkable, just thinking about it? I mean, he's not indifferent to you. He's not too busy for you. He makes himself accessible to each and every one of us. And furthermore, this king doesn't make us clean ourselves up to gain an audience with him. I mean, this king, he makes house calls for heaven's sakes. Just think about Zacchaeus. 
This dirty, wretched sinner who had no business being in the presence of God, but Jesus went right up to him and said, let me go to your house today. Think about the woman of the well. Think about the prostitutes. Think about the lepers. Jesus walked right into their mess. And he does the same with us. Isn't that amazing? The one who has been promised before the foundation of the world makes himself available to little old me and you? Who is this king? He is the prophesied triumphant king who comes to each of us brothers. He comes to us personally so that we might know him personally. That's who this king is. Now a question is begged to be asked then, well, how does he come to us? Because if you think about it, this is God's warrior. This is the son of God. He's the king of kings, right? He's in charge of absolutely everything. Should we be scared when he comes to us? No. Why? Because we see from verse 5 that he is also a peaceful king. The peaceful king. We see this in verse 5 in the Zechariah. He's riding upon a donkey. Now, when we usually associate Jesus on a donkey, we we assume that this is a a posture of humility. And rightly so, the word humble is right there in that that prophecy from Zechariah 9.9. But it goes far deeper than just what we normally think of humility. For example, it was not unusual for kings back then to ride upon a donkey. Did you know that? It was a statement. So think about this scenario. During wartime, a king of a people, king of a nation or an army, he would ride upon a war horse. He would have all of his battle arrangements, his armor on, that, go- that horse probably had armor on too to protect it. I mean, it was a terrifying sight to see the king of a nation upon a war horse carrying his sword, leading his troops into battle, right? It wasn't peace. It was wartime. However, if there was a season of amnesty, or if that war had been won, or if that war was over, that king would hop off that war horse and sit on a donkey. And he would ride around on a donkey. No sword in hand. Because he's demonstrating this is a time of peace. Everything's okay. You don't have to be afraid. So when Jesus, the victorious king, the triumphant king, comes into Jerusalem riding upon a donkey, it is a posture of humility, but it's also a statement about what his mission is. And this is his mission. In Jesus' first advent, he did not come to clean up shop. He did come to establish his kingdom and to push back the kingdom of darkness, absolutely. But he did not come to to kill off all the bad guys, (laughs) as we sometimes think of Jesus. He's not doing away with all the evildoers right now. He's not establishing the nation state of Israel to their dismay, because that's what they really wanted. What did he come to do in his first advent? He came to bring peace, brothers. And this is good news for every single person in this room. Jesus came to bring peace. There will be judgment later. Of course there will be. We're told that. We're assured that in his second advent there will be judgment. But praise be to God, that time is not now. Because if that time was now, none of us would be in this room, right? But that time is not now. Now is the time of amnesty. Now is the time of repentance. Now is the time of Jesus bringing peace to the world. Paul tells us in Ephesians 2 that Jesus is the Prince of Peace. He is our peace. And he has come to make peace between former enemies like us with God. And not only that, he's come to make peace between humanity, between former enemies. Paul says this is the profound mystery of the gospel. That through the cross, through shedding his blood, Jesus breaks down every single dividing wall of hostility, first off between us and God, then us and each other. That's the mission of Jesus, to bring peace. Now, you would think that anybody in their right mind would rejoice over this fact. I know every single person in this room is too, because this is great news. But it wasn't good news for everybody back then. And it's not great news for everybody today, even some folks in the church. Back then, those religious leaders 
they tolerated Jesus, but they ended up despising Jesus because they found that Jesus loved the very people that they hated. That's one of the main reasons they crucified Jesus, because they weren't playing ball with their prerogatives. You're bringing peace, Jesus? We're under Roman oppression. What are you doing? We don't, we don't want you to have mercy on them. If you, who, if you are who you say you are, kill these people. Wipe them out. Sinners, do you want us to dine with sinners? Those people are reprobates. We want nothing to do with them. They are others to us. Mercy? We're not praying for mercy. We're not praying for our enemies. We're praying in the temple, God, thank you that I'm not like these reprobates. <laughs> That's what they were doing. But Jesus says, no, 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 this is my mission. I have come for the other. I have come for the sinner. I have come for the prostitute. I have come for the Romans. I have come for the tax collectors to make peace. That's his mission. So brothers, let's just ask ourselves a question. Are we okay with that? Are we okay with the mission of Jesus bringing peace into this world? It's a very important question, I think, for us to ask because this day and age, in our cultural environment, there's not a whole lot of peace. There's a lot of hatred out there. There's a lot of division. There's a whole lot of us against them, even in the church. But Jesus says he, he, is, he, is, he, is, he is our peace, and he's come to bring peace. And his people, we ought to be about his mission of bringing peace into this world. You see, those religious leaders, they rejected Jesus because Jesus was not the king that they wanted. And the salvation that he was bringing was not the salvation that they thought they needed. But Jesus says, this is my mission. I, I am bringing peace. So this is what Matthew is showing us. Matthew is showing us that Jesus is the Messiah. He is the King of Kings. He is the triumphant King. But he is coming to make peace. He comes to us, not in wrath, but rather in love. Not to get his pound of flesh, but to make peace with us. Great, amazing news that this is who our King is. Now, I know everybody in this room desperately wants that to be true. We're banking our life on it. We believe it to be true. But if you're like me, sometimes we doubt it. Because we're thinking to ourselves, how could this really, at the end of the day, possibly be true? I have sinned against the Lord way too many times. I have run away from Jesus way too many times. Oftentimes, I do not submit to his kingship. I am just like these Pharisees. How could he possibly love me? How could there possibly be peace? Well, he tells us in this passage, Matthew records it. Not only is Jesus the triumphant and prophesied king, not only is he the peaceful king, but brothers, he's also the savior king. He's our savior king. This is why the crowds were initially crying, Hosanna. Again, they misunderstood exactly what type of salvation Jesus was bringing, but at least they understood that somehow, some way, he was a savior. Hosanna is a Hebrew word for save us now. And so essentially what they were crying, they were quoting Psalm 118, and they are crying out, the messianic deliverer, Jesus has come. Save us now, Jesus, and may your kingdom continue forever. That's what they were crying over and over and over again. Now, as usual, these folks spoke better than they knew. Jesus is king. We know that. But he did not come in his first advent to ascend the throne. What did he come to do? He came to die. The cross was always before Jesus, even in Bethlehem. That was the purpose of his life, to come and die for a bunch of bums like us. He is king, but he did not come to ascend the throne. He came to die. Jesus came to win, but he's going to win through losing. These guys wanted to be delivered from their, from their human enemies, but Christ has come to deliver us from our ultimate enemy, death. 
How? By dying for us. That's how you can know you have peace with God when you put your faith in Jesus Christ because he is our Savior King. Brothers, isn't it amazing that the people who had eyes to see back then understood the Zechariah 9-9 imagery? They completely missed the broader context, though, that of Passover. Do you realize in the exact moment that Jesus entered in Jerusalem, there were about 200,000 sheep that would be driven by shepherds through those very same roads that Jesus most assuredly was walking in and out amongst. And they were being prepared for sacrifice for the Passover meal to be celebrated a couple days later. In that very moment, Jesus was walking among 200,000 sheep which were able to be prepared for sacrifice. What is Jesus saying? Jesus is declaring that I am the Savior King, that I am the sinner's Savior. And just as these lambs are being prepared for slaughter, I, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, am being prepared for the ultimate sacrifice. Jesus says, yes, I'm coming to bring peace, but I'm not coming to conquer the world. I'm coming to die for you. I'm going to make you new, not by giving what your hearts desire, but by making your heart new, by living the life that you should have lived and dying the death that you deserved. That's how we can have peace with God, because Jesus is our Savior King, brothers. This is what Matthew's presenting to us. It's also kind of a picture, an object lesson in the mismatch that we often have between our expectations of Jesus and who he really is. These crowds were clamoring for Jesus, but eventually they grew very disappointed in Jesus. So much so that their cries of Hosanna quickly turned into crucify him in just a matter of a couple of days. And the reason is, is because the salvation that they wanted was not the salvation that they needed. They wanted something else from Jesus. Which just goes to show you, brothers, it's only when we understand our most desperate need that we're able to receive God's generous provision in the Lord Jesus Christ. Matthew showing us what type of king Jesus is. He is the prophesied king. This is the one that all of us have been waiting for. He is the peaceful king. He, he is turning this world upside down. And he's our savior king. Now lastly, and most importantly, at least according to Matthew's uh, point that he's making here, Jesus is also the authoritative king. Now, in verses 12 through 17, we see this famous scene of where Jesus cleanses the temple. Now, a lot of folks have misapplied this passage in history. What's, what's happening when Jesus cleanses this temple? Most people know about this passage, whether believers or not. It's a very famous story. Here's what's not happening. Jesus is not taking the temple in force. A lot of folks use that imagery that Jesus, he's just going there and wrecking up shop. He's taking it back. That's not what's happening here. Because, again, this is Jesus' house. He's the Son of God. It's his furniture. All right? He's not taking anything back. It's his. Another thing that's most likely not happening, Jesus is not really condemning the, the sell or the sale, rather, of, of animals to be sacrificed. Remember, the whole point of the temple was to make sacrifices. People were traveling far and wide to come to the temple to make sacrifices. That was the whole point of the temple. There needed to be people there to sell animals to be sacrificed. Now, they could have been gouging the prices, but I think if we look at the original language, I don't think that's what Jesus is condemning. The key comes from verse 13 when Jesus says, den of robbers. That word robber isn't normally how we think of the word robber. It's not talking about taking people's stuff or money. That word robber would have been applied to Barabbas. It was applied to the two thieves that were crucified on either side of Jesus. Jesus even applied it to himself in the Garden of Gethsemane when the crowds came to arrest him. They said, are you treating me like a robber? 
Back then, robber didn't mean how we typically mean robber. It's most likely akin to insurrectionist or revolutionary. People like those two thieves who were crucified on either side of Jesus, those who tried to bring the kingdom of God to bear in this world through force, through violence, by taking laws into their own hands. Right? So what Jesus is most likely condemning here is the fact that these under-shepherds, the rulers of the land, those people who are supposed to lead them in the knowledge of God, transformed the temple, the symbol of God's people, the place where heaven and earth met. Right? That what was supposed to be a city on the hill, a blessing to the nations, the place where you could come to seek God and to know God and to have transformative prayer. They transformed that essentially into a nationalistic weapon. They took that place as a symbol of us against them. They took what was supposed to be a blessing to Israel and eventually a blessing to the nations, and they used it as something to divide themselves from the rest of people. They essentially abandoned what their prerogative was, what the mission of God was, everything that Jesus was against, according to the Sermon on the Mount. So the question is then, how is Jesus going to condemn this practice of these religious leaders? How is he going to announce his authority over all things? Well, how about getting rid of the sacrificial system? Because that's exactly what happened. When Jesus flipped those tables, he made it impossible for people to to buy animals to sacrifice. He was calling into question the very existence of the temple. When those children declared him as the son of David, when he healed the blind folks in the temple, that was demonstrating the same thing to a lesser extent. But Jesus is calling into question what was at the center of the Jewish religion. What he was saying is that the temple is no longer the center of worship. I am. The temple is no longer the symbol of your faith. I am. The temple sacrificial system is no longer the hope of the world. I am. These leaders are no longer in authority. I am as the Son of God. I am the Messiah. And this is my house. That's what Jesus is showing. He is upending everything that was important to the religious establishment. And that's exactly what the fig tree parable demonstrated. It was a living parable. It actually happened. As he went to that fig tree and saw no fruit, he condemned that tree, cursed it. You will never be fruitful again. And that's exactly what he was doing with the temple. Up until this point, it has been implied, Jesus has been implying, that by coming to him, you could get everything that you normally would have gotten by going to the temple. But now Jesus is declaring it. He's telling people that he is the new temple. He is the meeting place of heaven and earth. He is the presence of God. And his people, Peter will later tell us, by virtue of being united to them, are the living stones to his cornerstone. Matthew is showing us that Jesus is the son of God. He is the new temple. He is the Messiah. He is the branch of David. He is the king of kings. He is the Lord of lords. He is an authority over all things. The children see it. The blind who have been healed see it. And the readers are left with a question. Do you see it? And if you do see it, how are you going to respond? And that's what our second point is about. Our second main point. We're going to go a little bit more quickly here in these two parables. We're left with the question, how are we going to respond to King Jesus? From this point on, starting in verses 23 through 27, Jesus is going to have major uh, confrontations with the Jewish leaders. I mean, he just upended the temple. He said some pretty damning things. So, yeah, you better believe they have confrontation ready for Jesus. And it begins in verse 23 through 27. Now, what prompts the parables that we just read moments ago are these questions that these Jewish leaders throw at Jesus. 
There's going to be similar questions they ask Jesus later, and it really all boils down to this question. Jesus, are you really the Messiah? Do you think that you're the Messiah, Jesus? They're obsessed with this, right? They're obsessed with it because the only person that could ever have more authority and power than them in Israel was, in fact, the Messiah. And then if Jesus really is the Messiah, then that would mean that they would have to submit to Jesus, and they really didn't want to submit to Jesus. So they asked him these questions. Then Jesus, with a brilliant stroke, as he always does, he answered their question with an even better question. (laughs) And he brings up the baptism of John. And he says, where do y'all think this came from? Did it come from heaven or was it from man? Now Jesus basically forced them to declare publicly what they thought about Jesus. He brought them to the point of decision. Right? Because if they said, okay, well, the baptism of John is from heaven, then that means that Jesus really is the Messiah because we remember what happened at Jesus' baptism. And that means then that they would have to believe Jesus and submit to him, which, of course, they didn't want to do. However, if they said that John's baptism was from man, the entire populace would be ticked off because everybody loved John the Baptist, right? And they didn't want to do that. So they smokescreened Jesus, and they had a brilliant idea. Jesus, we don't know your answer. We don't know the answer to that question, thinking that that would be the end of it. But in the moment, in that moment, when they said that, Jesus uncovered their hearts. Jesus uncovered that these people would never, ever, in a million years, submit to Jesus, no matter what the evidence showed. They were unwilling to do it. It also revealed, too, that their lives were driven more by the fear of men than the fear of God. Because all they were worried about was losing power and authority. And there's so many people today that, that try to manage Jesus as these religious leaders were trying to manage Jesus back then, right? But the gospel tells us, Jesus tells us, brothers, Jesus cannot be managed. He brings all of us to a point, if if we deal seriously with the gospel, if if we deal seriously with his kingship, it brings all of us to a point of decision. Is he or isn't he the king of kings and the son of God? We have to respond to him. We can't put him off. Don't put him off if you are. Now, how do we respond? In these parables, we see two things. We repent and we believe. If Jesus is who he says he is, first off, we must repent. Secondly, we must believe. Jesus says this himself in Mark chapter 1. For the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. Now, in verses 28 through 32, this is where we see that we must repent. This vineyard imagery, it's a clear reference to who the people of God were. The father in this parable is God. And so there's two groups of people. First off, there's that one son who initially refused his father's will. He went off, made a mess of his life, but came back and eventually uh, repented and came back to his father and did what his father wanted him to do. Then there was another son who represents an entirely different group of people, said, yes, God, we'll do what you want. But then they go off with no intention of ever doing what God or their father asked them to do. Now, as Matthew points out, as Jesus points out, this first group is representative of the prodigal son. Those prostitutes, those tax collectors who sinned and rebelled against God, but then knew what they had done. They had sinned against God, and they repented and came back to him. It's those people who are sinners, but know that they're sinners. It's those people who are sick and know that they're sick. And so they repent and go to the Lord. They throw themselves on his mercy lap. The other group of people are the Pharisees. The religious know-it-alls, the self-righteous folks, those with pearly white washed tombs that are only cared about what people think of them on the outside and have no real concern about their hearts on the inside. 
Jesus' point in this is, brothers, the true people of God are those who really repent. Who, who in humility acknowledge that we are sinful, that we are broken, but we repent and throw ourselves onto his mercy lap. Jesus is saying, it's only these people who will enter into my kingdom. Furthermore, what is repentance? Repentance, brothers, it's not a bad thing. It's a gift to us. The Westminster Shorter Catechism calls it a grace unto life. Normally we think about repentance as this thing that we just do when we're like six, when we come and profess Jesus, or it's this thing that we have to do now and we're in the doghouse with God. We have to repent to get out of the doghouse to make ourselves... Brothers, it's a grace unto life. It's a gift that God gives his people, repentance. Just think about what repentance is. By the Spirit, our eyes are awakened to the fact that we're sinners. We're awakened to true reality. He causes us to mourn our sin. Not fear condemnation. As Christians, we're not fearful. Why? Because we know that there's now no condemnation for those of us who are in Christ Jesus. We're resting in that. But we mourn the fact that we've sinned against the God who created us and redeemed us and loves us. You didn't do that. Without the Spirit, we wouldn't care. But the Spirit's in us, causing us to repent, causing us to mourn, enabling us to say no to our sin or to whatever this lifestyle is and saying yes to Jesus. We couldn't do that apart from Him. And ultimately, the Holy Spirit causes us to believe all the more deeply on the Lord Jesus Christ. It's a gift that God gives us. And it's those who repent that enter into the kingdom of God. But not only that, it's also those who believe. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel, Jesus says. And we see this in this last parable in verses 33 through 46. Taking the imagery of Isaiah 5 and Ezekiel 34, Jesus showed the leader's lack of fruit of belief by evidencing the way in which they misled Israel, rejected the prophets of God, and ultimately rejected Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Then taking up Psalm 118 and applying it to himself, Jesus shows that he truly is the promised Messiah. And he and he alone is going to bring in the promised kingdom. And everyone who doesn't believe, who rejects Jesus, they're bringing condemnation on themselves. This is what Jesus is saying, that we must believe. Now, just think about these these Jewish leaders, they were the under-shepherds of Israel. They were supposed to train the people of God in the fear and admonition of the Lord. They were supposed to lead them to the streams of living water. But they misled Israel. They hurt Israel because ultimately they rejected the true shepherd. This is what Jesus is saying in this parable. Now, why in the world would they have done that? David Platt says, ultimately, they rejected Jesus because they loved themselves more. In pride, they grasped for power, they grasped for control, they grasped for authority, they looked for salvation in themselves, they trusted themselves. Ultimately, they rejected Jesus because they did not believe. Now, what is belief? What is true faith? Three things. First off, it's just knowing what the gospel says. You understand the arithmetic. We are sinners before a just and holy God with no hope in ourselves. Our only hope is the Lord Jesus Christ. You understand it. Secondly, you actually believe it. You believe that's true. And I think the, the, the Pharisees here, they, they accomplished those first two things. I mean, the evidence was way too clear. All right, they believed that Jesus was something special. They believed that he was the Messiah, but they didn't trust Jesus, which is the third component of true faith. We first understand what the gospel says, we believe it, and then we give our lives to it. We're trusting. It's like this chair. I understand the, the concept that this chair will keep me upright if I sit in it. I actually believe the fact that that chair will hold me up. But you're really not trusting it until you actually sit your caboose in it. Right? 
We don't have true faith unless we're also trusting Jesus, that we're trusting our lives into his hands, that we're allowing him to lead us wherever he wants us to go. Jesus says, For God so loved the world that he sent his only son that should whoever believe in him might not perish but have eternal life. The gospel is so powerful. The kingship of Jesus is so otherworldly, brothers. It brings us to the point of decision. Do we believe or don't we? Either way, there are profound consequences as what these parables are showing us. We are given Matthew 21 so that we might know that Jesus is truly the Son of God. He is the Lord. He is the King of kings. He's in power and authority over absolutely everything. Salvation is in his train. He is deserving of praise. He is deserving of our entire lives, every aspect of it. This is what Matthew presents, and we're left with the question, how are we going to respond? As C.S. Lewis says, it will not do to try to manage Jesus. He is not just a good teacher with good advice that you can add on to your already well-rounded lives. We can't put him off, brothers. He is the Son of God. And because of that, the only response is to repent and believe. Brothers, may our eyes be open like those kids. I was praying that for myself last night and this morning. May my eyes be open to Jesus like those kids in chapter 21. May we have the eyes of those who were healed, those blind men who could see Jesus in all of his glory. We may be like those men and truly believe that Jesus is the Son of God. He is our King. And by believing, following him faithfully. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we're so grateful that in your grace you come to us. We don't deserve it. We didn't earn it. We didn't achieve it. We didn't even ask for it, but in your mercy and your grace, you invaded our life. You are our Savior King. You are our only hope. You are the hope of the world. By the power of your Spirit, O oh God, help us to believe all the more deeply. I know that we believe, but help our unbelief. and Help us to believe more deeply. Grant us the gift of increased faith that we might follow you all the days of our life. Help us to encourage each other as we walk uh, limpingly following you too. We love you, Father, and it's in Christ we pray. Amen.